0: We are furthering our study uh, this month in our series in Ecclesiastes. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and our reference today is uh, Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. And I'm going to just say a quick word of prayer, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for your word it gives us life. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Ecclesiastes is a challenging book to enter into, but it fits uh, perfectly within the overarching story of your word, the narrative of your word. Lord, we are in a world that is full of vanity, yet we have hope for the world to come when Jesus returns. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears and give us Uh, Faith to receive what you are speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and "'Planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. "'I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. "'I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. "'I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, "'more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. "'I also gathered for myself silver and gold "'and the treasure of kings and provinces.' I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word. Leo Tolstoy, he writes a confession, and he's talking about his journey of how he grew up in the church, he left the faith, and how he returns to faith. And he tells this story about a friend uh, he was talking to. His friend grows up um, also in the Orthodox faith, but one night he's, laying, or he's kneeling down um, before he's going to go to bed, and he starts to pray, and his brother says, you still do that? And it was in that exchange that for Tolstoy's friend, he abandoned his faith. But it wasn't because he envied his brother and whatever his beliefs were. He said it was, it was interesting. He says, it was as if this finger pushed a wall that was already caving in on itself, talking about his own faith. And the reality is that's a, that's a common experience for a lot of people. People are often cynical about faith and religion. Without grounding your faith, it can collapse under the weight of such scrutiny. But our wisdom writer here in Ecclesiastes, he flips the script on that cynicism. He, like that finger that pushed Toy Story's friend, the, the writer here is pushing back on the things that create doubt in the first place. What if we applied cynicism to the things that lead people to abandon faith or said differently if you struggle with doubt what if you began to doubt your doubts what would happen this passage is about pleasure there's lots of ways that he engages in pleasure but the preacher effectively takes the posture of one who is cynical about restraint now what do i mean by that in in other words He says about his heart, "Um, we're going to just go full into pleasure, which is a reaction to, well, restraint must be bad. Let's see what pleasure does for us, all right? And our culture is one that is also cynical about restraint. It tells you you're good, you're pure, you, you know, you have good intentions. The problem is society. It's holding you back. It's pushing you down. It's restrictive the social mores, they're restraining, they're interfering with your freedom. All you need to do is throw those off, let it go. And the restraints, and seek whatever your heart desires, and in that you find freedom, right? That's our message, that's the cultural message. The preacher here says, let's examine that claim. You see, because if you're cynical about restraint, then if you live your life doing whatever makes you happy, whatever your heart desires, whatever you wish, what's the end result? Our title today is Hope for the Cynics of Restraint. Hope for the Cynics of, re- of Restraint. And there's three things you have to, if you're a cynic of restraint, if you're pushing back on things, there's three things here you, you have to know. Number one, the pursuit of pleasure. What does that entail? Secondly, the failure of pleasure. What is its limit? And thirdly, the way that's pleasing, the pursuit of pleasure, the failure of pleasure, the way that's pleasing. Um, We've, as we've been going through or started last week, uh, the thing I said last week is it's definitely still true. Ecclesiastes is is not like biting an apple. You know, you read the Gospel of Mark. Okay, I get what's going on here. Jesus, he does all this stuff. This is a, you know, it's amazing. All these miracles and teachings and things. You read Ecclesiastes, you're like. um... Excuse me. What's going on here? I don't understand. Is he saying the same? He seems to be contradicting me. And you know, it's all this stuff. It's more like a coconut. It takes some skill. It takes some effort and patience. But if you apply them, you can get the fruit, or whatever you call that that's inside the coconut, the meat. I don't know. Um, So the author. So here's the thing: you have to know the author here is. He's he's created this persona, the preacher, and he's also got in the text this narrator who starts off the book and who finishes the book. Who pops up, you know, one random place in the middle. But this is is, is a stylistic and artistic way of getting a point across about the meaning of life by exploring all these other views that would be called cynical. And the preacher he takes these cynical views and examines the number of them and the subject matters um, that are, you know most common that we might think of of being cynical and uh, he shows that those two you know these these other subject matters they all are vanity. So anyways, let's jump into point 1 here, the pursuit of pleasure. Verse 1, the preacher has a dialogue with his heart which he actually does in a number of places in the text. He says, "I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure." enjoy yourself it's important to understand that in the old testament that the heart was the animating center of life it's not how we think about heart is sort of emotional the heart is actually the place of intellect it's where our thoughts stem from it's the core of who you are and for him to test his heart with pleasure in other words it's kind of as if he's saying you know maybe Maybe he would be inclined to being stoic and just sort of going through life, not enjoying himself or what have you. But he's saying, rather than be restrained, let's pursue pleasure. So you see how it's being cynical of restraint? Okay, restraint, bad. Pursuing pleasure must be good, right? It's actually important. It's, in, it's a good thing for, for you to consider. If I get the thing that I'm seeking... If I could have all those things that my heart desires, you know, whether that be that, you know, all these vacations or whether that be all the time I wanted to play the games that I wanted or do the things that I wanted or have what I wanted, will it actually bring meaning and significance to my heart? Is that what's going to happen? Maybe it's a career move. It's something that you're pursuing. It's one thing to pursue, obviously, a career move because it's a better fit, but it's another thing to pursue it because you think, oh, that's going to solve all of my problems, or a lifestyle or a certain status, or maybe even certain temptations that you have, an identity you want to create for yourself. You have to ask yourself, if I get that, is it going to grant me the deepest longings for meaning and significance? Well... The preacher here is, he says in verse 1, he actually summarizes what he's about to explain. He just flatly says, no, that's not going to happen. Behold, this also was vanity. Um, he preaches, he's pleasure-seeking for the f- purpose of s- finding meaning. He says that that doesn't get you there. Breaking restraints of society, cultural mores, religious beliefs only results in more vanity. Vanity, by the way, this word hevel, um, we said has, could be nuanced, it can have three different meanings and is used in different ways here in the text. It can mean fleeting, you know, life's a breath, it's very short. It can mean frail, you know, you're, you're moving along and then all of a sudden you get, you know, a, a test result from the doctor or something happens, a friend passes away and they were perfectly healthy or whatever it is, it reminds you life is frail in that sense, Vanity. Or it can mean futile. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I'm not moving forward. And we talked about, you know, some of our uh, New Year's resolutions. No matter how, I, 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 you know, I, I want to lose that weight or I want to drop these numbers in my whatever it is, um, in my uh, vitals. But no matter how hard I try, it's not going to work. This futile. So vanity, that's what we experience he concludes, even pleasure seeking for the sake of meaning is vanity. But you know what's interesting? Even our cultural experiment of pushing back against restraint in the pursuit of pleasure kind of leads us to the same conclusion. There's a um, a book that has come out about the various generations from the silent generation and subsequent all the way up to present. Um, I think it goes to Gen X, or I can't remember if it was Millennials or Gen, Gen X, maybe Gen X. And, and basically shows that so each subsequent g- generation, religion becomes less important, family becomes less important, community becomes less important. This is a study done by, uh, I think it was a UCSD professor, her name is Twangi. But, anyways, um, but conversely, anxiety, loneliness, medication skyrocketing, right? We're we're cynical about restraint. You know, religions restraining us, uh, traditional values, or whatever you want to call it, however you want to categorize it, they're all restraining us. So let's get rid of those things and pursue your own way. And what's the result? Anxiety, loneliness. Lots of different ways of medication, whether that be self-medication or otherwise. So does doing your own thing help you to escape the vanity of this world? Do you, do you end up with freedom? So here's a quote by uh, Justin Brierley, um, which apparently he did a lot of debates with the New atheists. He wrote a book recently called How New Atheism Collapsed and Gave Way to New Faith. He says this, we know far more than our forebearers did about how the world works and possess a hitherto unimaginable ability to control it through technology, medicine, and science. Yet today's skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression suggest we know far less about how to live happily in such a world. In your cynicism of restraint, if you pursue if, you, if you're pursuing pleasure to gain hope, if you're, if you're kicking off restraint to gain what your heart desires, you'll make no progress toward the thing you want, meaning, significance, and true hope. Our cultural experience suggests this. The preacher plainly tells it. So let's consider further what he pursues. At least it's the second point, the failure of pleasure. What did the preacher pursue? Look, consider verse 2. He says, I said of laughter it is mad, and of pleasure what use of it. Now, you read that. That can feel depressing. Laughter feels good. It is good. And Scripture does encourage us that laughter is a good thing. But here's what he's... One of the things he's saying here, when you look at the original language, he's covering the range of pleasures. So the first word, laughter... He's basically talking about silly fun that you have, maybe stupid fun. You know, he's like, I did the stupid fun stuff, and then I did the thoughtful fun stuff, the word for pleasure. I did the lowbrow pleasure. I did the highbrow pleasure. Everything from wine to horticulture. Did it all, same result. Okay. He even flirts with folly, as he talks about in verse 3. Um, he's, but he's saying, you know, I cheer, I, I, I sought, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with mind, uh, with wine rather. Now he does say, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So maybe he didn't get drunk. He just had a lot of wine. I don't know. Uh, that could be what that means, but he's pursuing what wine can do. And then he says in verse four, I made great works. I built all these houses. I planted vineyards, um, got lots of grapes from those vineyards. You know, I made myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees, in verse 5. In verse 6, pools to water the forest of the growing trees, verse 7. He bought slaves and held possession of slaves, which in the ancient days would be a sign of status and wealth. He had great possessions of herds and flocks, and these were things probably the slaves were taking care of. In verse 8, he gathered for himself silver and gold. He's monetarily wealthy, also properties, the treasure of kings and provinces. He's got singers, men and women, and concubines. Now, quick note on the word concubines. This word here is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. So it could mean that. It could mean treasure chests. It could mean cup bearers. Um, We don't know. kind of depends on how people sort of interpret the whole book as a whole, or this section at least, that they interpreted as concubines. At least in the ESV, that's what it says there, but you'll see a footnote. But you could say he's got wine, women, and song. That's what it sort of summarizes to mean. He's got a lot of stuff. Let's just say that. There are a lot of things in pleasurable pursuits based on how the world would view pleasure. He's, he's pretty much done it all. And, and remember, this is he's taking on the persona of a king. So he's able to push the margins much further than the average person. He's got more wealth. He's got more at his disposal. What was the result of all that? He he went in every direction to find pleasure. What is the result? He says in verse 9, I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, Um, which we said last week, a lot of folks through the centuries have thought this was Solomon, but more recently in the last, I don't know, decades or more. um, Most people, many have abandoned that idea and think that this is truly a persona, but it could be in the sort of essence of Solomon or perhaps Solomon and Hezekiah or or something to that effect. But the point is, he's above everybody else. But his wisdom remained with him. Whatever he desired, he did. He kept nothing from himself. He just went after it. Do you see how this preacher's pursuits very similar to a modern person who is cynical about restraint? Whatever I want it, whatever I mean. If you if you study American pop music, how many times does the phrase "follow your heart" come around? It's it's actually pretty staggering. He followed his heart to the max. We say "you be you." Well, he did that to the max. And it, it, the result is, verse 10, he says, whatever, he says, he says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Now, if you read that and you say, well, wait a minute, what's the failure? It, it sounds like a success. He, he sought pleasure, verse 1. He found pleasure, verse 10. Where's the failure? Well, read verse 11. Then he thought about it all. He, consi- he says, I considered all, my hand, all that my hands had done, all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after win. It, was pr- it, it, didn't, it didn't bring meaning. Sure, I had fun, it didn't add any meaning or significance to my life. How did that happen? How does he move from verse 10 to verse 11? How does he say, on the one hand, I had all this fun, but on the other hand, it was, it, it, it was, it was vanity? Well, he, he gives us a clue, I think, here in the text, multiple places, you see, because what does he say? Verse 4, he says, I, I, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards, key phrase, for myself. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and, and parks. Verse 6, I made myself pools. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold. You see, when you push, when, you, when you're cynical of restraint and you push off restraints, which by the way, hope is not found in the restraints. We'll get to that in a moment either. But if you push off restraints to pursue pleasure, you end up with self-centeredness. If we say you be you, if we say push, all, push back what all, of, what, all of, what all of society is holding you back from, you end up with self-centeredness. So I mentioned Leo Tolstoy or earlier. In his confessions, he says about himself at a point where he's abandoned his, his faith as a child in, in Christianity, in Christ, um, and he's living his own life. He says this. He says, I can clearly see the only real faith I had at that point in this space when he's not a believer, the only real faith I had, apart from the animal instincts motivating my life, was a belief in perfection. So I appreciate his honesty. He's saying... I had faith in something else, perfection. Here's what he says. I tried to perfect myself intellectually and studied everything I came upon in life. I tried to perfect my will, setting myself rules I tried to follow. I perfected myself physically. I cultivated endurance and patience. All this I regarded as perfection. The beginning of it all was, of course, moral perfection but this was soon replaced by a belief in general perfection that is a desire to be better not in my mind or i not in my eyes or before god but in the eyes of other people and very soon this determination to be better than others became a wish to be more powerful than others more famous more important wealthier do you see what he's saying He's saying the same thing that the preacher is saying. He's saying if you are are cynical of restraint and you abandon that and you reject it and you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, what you end up becoming is more and more self-centered because the reality is the vanity of this world is not just outside in society. It's also in your own heart. Being a cynic of restraint, you won't find hope in pursuing what your heart desires, because you'll find that the vanity you hope to outrun, cast off, be free from, is actually inside of you. Society is not just oppressing you in this world of vanity. Your own heart, if given the chance and space, will make everything in your life, everything you pursue, every relationship you have, all about you, and that is vanity. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us with the way that's pleasing. Our last point, how do you beat vanity? How do you get out of this cycle? How do you break free? Well, verse three is actually a clue for us, where he says, he searched with his heart how to cheer his body with wine, his heart guiding him the whole time with wisdom, And he says that, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In other words, he's seeking the meaning of life for all humans. Said in another way, he's a proxy for all of humanity. With all of his kingly wisdom, resources, and access, surely he could break the spell of vanity over the world, or at least... Show us how to find true meaning and significance in life. But this king failed. As great as he was, greater than everyone else, but where this great king failed, there would one day come a greater king who would succeed in this pursuit. Jesus Christ came and he showed us the true meaning. He showed us how to be free of the vanity cycle. There's a scripture that will come up on the screen from First. Corinthians 1558. I want you to consider what it's saying. This is Paul talking about the impact of the resurrection of Jesus for all of those who believe in him. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not what? Not in vain. Think about that promise. And think about, again, the phrasing, the the prepositional phrase, your labor in the Lord. The preacher, he labored for himself, but for the one who is laboring in the Lord, for the one who is in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. How is this possible? It's possible because the one who is Christ, one who has Christ in his or her life, makes his pursuits or her pursuits for the Lord, has made contact with the one who came and ushered in a new age that was undoing, that is undoing all of the vanity that is in this life. It will culminate with his return, where all of the vanity will be undone. We talked about it last week. Paul says that in, verse, in, in, in Romans 8.20, he says that, that all of the world has been subjected to futility. It's the same word, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew, futility for vanity. It's all been subjected by the one who subjected, subjected it um, in hope that one day the children of, of God will be revealed. In other words, in hope that one day Jesus will return and restore this world from this vanity that has been since the fall of humanity. It's about being in Christ. Now, the Mandalorians say, this is the way. Our culture says, be cynical of restraint. Do your thing. This is the way. Jesus Christ came and said, I am the way. What makes this promise, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, possible, is because Jesus himself is the way. He doesn't show us the way or a path. He is the way. He says, pursue me. He says things like, follow me. Receive me in your heart. Don't follow your heart. He says things in his teaching ministry, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, if if you pursue pleasure for the sake of significance and meaning, you will lose life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How can he say this? Why does he say this? Well, what he wants you to have is true pleasure, You see, Christianity is not... Jesus didn't come and say, nobody have fun. Okay, I'm here. Stop having fun. It's over. That's not what he said. He says, no, I want you to have true pleasure, true joy. He wants you to have his joy. The night before his greatest agony, his greatest despair, he spends energy effort to tell his disciples a number of things, but in one of his points of summary, he says, I have told you these things that you may have, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, Jesus comes to offer you true pleasure, the way of true pleasure, true joy, true fulfillment. He says, have my joy in Have joy in me. Let your joy be full. If you have his joy, then you don't have to pursue pleasure to have significance, to have meaning, or to be filled up. If you have his joy, you come from a standpoint of having a source that can fill you, such that whether you engage in silly fun, like family dance parties in the kitchen, or highbrow fun, like planting natives plants in your garden, you're able in Christ to do so with his joy. Not because you're pursuing pleasure to fill an empty void. In his death and resurrection, Jesus not only redeemed his people, he inaugurated a new age, one which will culminate in his return, while he will forever crush all the vanity of this world and establish the new heavens and the new earth. So therefore, if you want vanity, follow your heart. But if you want hope, follow Jesus. He is the hope that pleases The only way not to live a life of vanity is to pursue Christ. It's in him that all the vanity of life begins to be redeemed. The only way to have joy that's full rather than the one you chase because your joy is never full is to receive the joy that comes from him. That joy, by the way, is a restoration of love, relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, and restoration of being able to love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full. It's the thing that in all of our pursuits to be cynical of restraint, we actually abandon faith, family, community. It's the thing that Jesus came to restore right relationship with God and with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your word comes all the way down to our level, even willing to engage in cynicism to show us its own vanity, to show us, Lord, that there is a way of hope. Lord, I thank you that you don't just sit up on high and castigate us for doubt or for our affections that go awry, but rather you show us in your patience and your grace that those things that we chase after, those vain idols, those whatever it is, they won't satisfy us, but only you will. And this morning, God, I pray for... Any of us who have struggled, we all struggle in this, but maybe imminently struggling right now, Lord, I pray that you would, in your kindness, draw them to see the hope that is in you and the true joy that is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.